Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Strategic Financial Leadership. Today I have Vadim Verhoglad on the podcast. He's the Vice President and Head of Research publication at DVO1, which is a fintech company, which we'll learn more about. But I'm definitely glad to have you on the show. Welcome, Vadim. Thanks for having me, Steve. Glad to be here. So let, let's start with your background. I'm always so curious on how people you know, travel through life and make their way in their career and, and whatnot. So maybe you could bring us up to speed on you know, how did you go from being this child, right? And, and moving into where you're at now, were you always interested in business and technology and the world of finance? Uh, you know, has your path been pretty linear? Has it been pretty, you know, pretty sloppy along the way? Or like, tell us about your journey and provide a little bit about your story. Absolutely. I definitely say it has, it didn't start out very linear and then it kind of got a little bit more linear as I settled in, into my career. I'm originally from the Soviet Union, uh, and I moved to the U.S. in '92. Hence, you know, the last name. I think probably a dead giveaway. Throughout my life, I was kind of certain I always wanted to do something either in finance or in computer science, and I weighed the two. I did computer science in high school, and I ultimately did f- finance in college. But I didn't exactly know that I was going to do what I was doing. In some ways, I was kind of. I wasn't exactly the most meticulous student in high school. I think I got my act together closer to the middle of college. And I kind of lucked into research, actually, because I got a little bit of a late start. And I realized that I better start securing internships uh, pretty later on. I I don't think that would have worked as well today, but in the early 2000s, a little different. And I was scheduled to start in the prime brokerage group of Bear Stearns, which at the time was obviously a really, really important institution. And I had done my internship there. But Something about the last interview that I had at Bear before I got the offer, where the person that I interviewed was just really honest with me and said, this isn't as analytical a job as you think it is. And that kind of gave me a really like big concerning view that this wasn't going to be the, the job that I wanted. So even though I got the offer, I kept looking. And at that point, I was pretty late in, the, uh, in my senior year. And um, I did manage to get an interview at Fitch which you know wasn't didn't have the prestigious name of Barristers at the time and wasn't quite as much money but it was an offer to be to get an analytical role mm-hmm. and it really kind of spoke to me because the markets it was structured credit it was mortgages at the time which is 2006 and this is right in the middle of the credit boom and it seemed like a really interesting 
viewpoint on what the world would look like. It was a very research-oriented role, and it seemed like an opportunity to understand data and understand what trends mean and, and, and all of this stuff. And even though it was less money, and even though you know, quite a few of my mentors had said, hey, you, you already accepted an offer at this big bank. If you reject it, they'll blackball you, and, and you'll never get a job in finance again. That was obviously pretty worrisome, but I ultimately took the plunge, and it wound up being very fortuitous because since I interviewed so much later, then the normal process, I got to work in an almost completely bespoke role and it was outside of the typical analyst channel. And my boss, his name is Grant Bailey, who I actually full circle work with now uh, on a kind of relationship basis. Um, he really gave me the opportunity to shine. He gave me the opportunity to learn uh, a little bit of coding, a little bit of like research data and get my my hands dirty really in in the numbers. And he was a fantastic boss. He still is. But from there, I spent about a year at Fitch. And as luck would strike it, right as kind of people were starting to see that the data in the subprime mortgage market was really unraveling, I got the opportunity to interview at a hedge fund uh, called Tricadia Capital, which uh, I interviewed with a couple of hedge funds at that time. But this was one where they were very definitively and very deliberate about how they were positioned in the current environment, which I mostly agreed with because it looked like the writing was on the wall. So I went there um, and spent about 12 years there. And as that was winding down, I was realizing that in some ways my job had gotten a bit repetitive. I was Mm -hmm. investing in the same bonds. I was looking at companies the same way. And I felt like I wasn't advancing in my skill set as much as I would have liked. So in came this opportunity as Tricadia's structured credit group was winding down to do something that was a little bit more very linked to the market, but gave me the opportunity to learn what a business is like, really learn a bit of engineering and coding and get into the fintech world, which it was very fortuitous because I was looking for a bit of a shift and they were looking for someone that had a bit of expertise uh, in the markets. And it, it seemed like the role that they were actually looking for was junior to what I was, but they made it fit. And, um, it's been a fantastic opportunity since then. I've I've loved being here because it gives me the opportunity to both write research, look at a bunch of markets, and get as creative as I want with kind of content that we're that we're looking at and providing insights and and all. And Devion, I ironically was bought by Fitch last year. So my initial boss, who I started with, who actually recommended me for the Tricadia job, is now someone that I interact with on a weekly or a monthly basis. Isn't that funny how it all comes around? I always tell people like, be careful, never burn bridges because you never know how like relationships are going to like go and then come back around. And it's, it's just, it's like a giant circle, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and, and the great thing is if you meet great people, great people tend to stick around and you always wind up with a way to interact with them again at some point. Yeah, I completely agree. So you're a very analytical person and you like to do research and you've done some research about, you know, Gen Z. And, and when you reached out to be on this podcast, I thought your your summary was was very interesting. So let me start off with this question. What do you think are the biggest economic misconceptions of Gen Z and where do you think these come from? I think the myth around Gen Z and its financial status really started in 2008 and it really started as a result of the disproportionate weight that the global financial crisis had on younger people. Their unemployment rate just completely went asymptotic relative to almost any cohort. And not just unemployment, but underemployment. We really saw a lot of the a lot of the challenges that continue to drive millennials today emerge in 2008. Uh, the 
the skill mismatch, the degree mismatch, the amount of people that had to retrain themselves and go into grad school in 2008 to 2011, and how even that decision built up the student loan debt bubble we have today. And it didn't seem that that narrative ever died. So Mm -hmm. it seemed like at first it was millennials are broke and they can't get jobs and they don't want to marry and they don't want to buy houses, even though it was in large part a response to a global financial crisis brought on them right as they started their career. And there just wasn't any narrative that said Gen Z was doing better, even though the data was suggesting they were completely doing significantly better than millennials were. And then came COVID, which everybody said was, of course, going to hurt Gen Z worse because they were just starting their career and they were taking away their in-person employment opportunities and they weren't going to build a mentorship that they had. And then came 2021, 2022, and people said, oh, well, look at how much financial debt they're taking on. Look at their credit card growth. So it seemed like, unfortunately, once a narrative starts, it's really hard to chip away at it. But the only way that you can do so is by looking at the data, looking at multiple sources of data and seeing how much of that data is true, how much of the narrative is true, and what, if anything, are people missing? Because I find Mm -hmm. that the answer to, to, to bad narratives is always good data. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, where does this false narrative come from, though? Is it just through like observation and he says, she said type of interactions that just like build this massive narrative? Because, yeah, I agree. People look at the younger generation and even with millennials. I, I remember doing speaking engagements all around the country to help coach you know, business leaders about how do you work with millennials and how do you build a culture that like fosters, you know, good relations with millennials because like, oh, millennials are lazy. You know, they're, they're not ambitious. They live with their parents. They play video games. They have so much student debt. You know, they're going after degrees that aren't going to be super productive out there. And oh my gosh, you know, like what does the future look like with the millennials and then Gen Z coming up behind them? And, you know, I, I never liked that. And I never felt comfortable with, with that type of rhetoric because I know a lot of millennials and I, I think they're amazing and they're highly ambitious and they want to do great things and they, they want to learn and they want to, you know, just a, a better life than where they came from. And, you know, so I didn't really see it and sure there's always the one off, but where does this like mainstream false narrative come from and, and what's the motivation behind it? Is it just ignorance or is it just, what? what is it exactly? You know, it's a, it's a great question you're asking. And I think in some ways, when you have this kind of multifaceted complex problem, such as what do you do when you have a massive generation and millennials are a humongous age generation that comes into the workforce at a, in a time of really a twice in a century financial crisis, which is 2008 and which so disproportionately fell upon their shoulders that you want to assign some kind of blame. You want to say, oh, well, they haven't recovered now because they're lazy or because it was a skill mismatch. But in reality, the challenge was they're coming into a world where a lot of events are outside of their control. And there's this great quote that I've heard in, in from many, many speakers where the Getting your first job and getting your foot in the door and building your initial relationships just matters so much. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do it, either because you don't have the right skill set or more importantly, because the market just isn't in demand for for the skills that you have and they just don't have robust hiring, you can get onto a ladder that becomes really, really difficult to get off. 
mm-hmm. because you haven't built that initial skill set, you haven't built that initial mentorship, those initial relationships, and you aren't able to start on that career trajectory the way that other groups have. And although 2008 was a pernicious crisis, it was in a lot of ways very unusual and really un- incomparable to anything except you know, the 1920s and 1930s, this level of kind of fall off or this level of a generational problem persisting for a long time and taking kind of decades on wine, that in particular isn't exactly new. Uh, and that has happened before. And the example I'll give you is, in some ways, people even forget that the boomer generation didn't exactly walk into uh, all things Rose's environment when it came to starting their own professional career. Because in a lot of cases, the boomers came into the professional world in the late 60s and throughout the 1970s, which was a time of stagflation, very high unemployment and high inflation, and a lot of economic uncertainty. And there was a lot of issues that came as a result of that. And there was a lot of kind of societal challenges. And there were a lot of people that didn't get on the ladder and really couldn't advance their career. The economic good times that we associate and the amount of wealth that they built was really built in the 1980s in some ways and starting in 83, 84, after the huge recession of 81, 82. And the challenge is that, number one, we forget the impact of those kind of generational shifts. We don't as much hear of what happened to the millennials that couldn't get the, you know, at the time union jobs or at the time the manufacturing jobs in the 70s and how that transcended and how that, you know, shifted their career and their eventual outcome. But we do know for certain that economic inequality started rising very substantially in the 1980s. We know that there was a lot of generations that that were lost. We know that there were a lot of societal problems. There was a lot of people that kind of fell out of the system because of factors that really weren't in their control. So in a lot of ways, that's in some ways something that kind of happens to millennials. And the challenge is that after a few years, we forget how difficult the environment was. So we started to try to assign a narrative like millennials are this or they're that or they've got the skill mismatches. The truth is the millennials went to grad school to retrain their skill set and they took on a lot of debt because of that grad school move. And market forces really just caused millennials to recover much slower. We forget that millennial unemployment rate didn't return to its 2007 levels until 2017, nearly two years after the overall economy did. And that's not even taking into account the U6 underemployment rate, which by all anecdotal evidence suggested that that was even more disproportionately millennials. So they faced a really tough market. They took on a lot of student debt because they had to re-go back into grad school. And it's always because, you know, they also increased undergraduate enrollment because a lot of times there was a big narrative pre-2008 that college is the way to go. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we had to start fitting a narrative, which was, well, it's got to be their fault. But in reality, it's when young people start out their careers, they're very much takers of their environment and not setters of their environment. And I, I think we forget just the finesse, the huge financial, economic and societal pressures that this group faced when they were starting their career, how that start really magnified their behavior throughout. And in a lot of ways, the purpose of my Gen Z article is just how different that environment has been for Gen Z, which really is a 180, and how that's not really being properly picked up by 
broad mainstream uh, views, even though the data suggests that what Gen Z is facing is almost the exact opposite of what the millennials faced. Yeah, which is very interesting. And and I love your research. And I, I think that's great. So let me ask you this. You know, when we think about the state of the world, or at least let's, let's just narrow in on the United States, we have over $31 trillion in debt as a country. You know, our, I just read yesterday that our deficit for the first eight months of the fiscal year was $1.2 trillion. That's our gap, right? Between, you know, our, our tax revenue and our expenditures. And we have other issues, you know, we have high inflation and, and I don't know how we cover this deficit other than raising taxes, which is going to hurt the economy and consumer spending or, you know, printing more money, which is going to lead to more inflation. And, you know, there's just a lot of challenges and our debt is escalating at a, you know, exponential rate. So enter Gen Z and, you know, the millennials are already, you know, on the stage when you think about that, are you like, oh my gosh, you know, we're screwed? Or do you think it's like, okay, we got a great generation coming up through the ranks and they're equipped with skill sets and capabilities that previous generations didn't have and they are well prepared to handle the challenges of today? Or do you think that nobody is really equipped for what's ahead and what does the future look like? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. You know, there's a lot of things we just covered, so I'm going to unpack a few of these uh, independently. You know, I think the national debt is, it's a very worthwhile discussion to have, and it's its certainly, you know, big numbers. But thinking about just the U.S. national debt in a vacuum, in isolation, kind of misses the grand scheme of how the U.S. economy is doing, because we have so much debt that doesn't live on government balance sheets. And we instead have a very, very wealthy population. So I'll give you a few narratives. If you take overall debt in society, we can take it at government level, state, local level, corporate level, and individual level. The government debt has been rising, absolutely. And there's a number of great economists. Uh, Michael Pettis is a particularly interesting one in his views on China. And his view is that governments that run deficits, they, are, they kind of allow society to to pivot to the needs of its its members more than 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 nations that run surpluses, but that's a really high level concept and probably better for a different guest. I will say that if you look at the other three pillars of that of that stool about total debt, federal debt was rising, but state and local debt actually has fallen quite a bit from two thousand seven. Uh, we forget how much less states and states and municipalities have borrowed, how much less they do as a result of that crisis, and in some ways still to this day. We also don't take into account that corporations also really right-size their balance sheet, particularly in the financial services sector. We certainly know that today, U.S. banks as a whole, not every bank, certainly we've seen that in 2023, but the U.S. banking system as a whole, particularly the large banking systems, are fortress balance sheets that are really kind of well-protected from not just a an economic downturn, but a pretty severe one. Um, if you look at J.P. Morgan's capital reserve ratios, they're... It's, a, it's really a fortress balance sheet. So that's an entity that 
in some ways is significantly delevered. Uh, a lot of the big, uh, you know, equities that we have in the U.S. they're they largely run their business through cash. They don't take on a lot of debt. You see the big fang stocks; none of them are particularly levered. And then that really leaves consumers. And what we forget is just the, the significant deleveraging that consumers undertook, both as a percentage of income, but especially as a percentage of wealth levels since 2007.、Mm-hmm. You know, on a, on a total basis, we talk about total consumer debt even today is. On a nominal basis, not inflation-adjusted, not households, just total numbers, it's up something like two or three trillion, maybe closer to four trillion from two thousand seven. It's a lot, yeah. But wealth levels are up seventy-two trillion over that time frame. We have over one hundred and forty trillion dollars of wealth in the United States. That、mm-hmm. kind of puts that number of thirty-one trillion dollars of debt into perspective, because in theory, if we were willing to Monetize just the liquid portion of our assets, just the liquid portion, which is something to the tune of more than thirty-one trillion. We could literally gas the debt tomorrow. Yeah. Now, does that matter? It's 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 one of those things we have to think about. Yes, we have a lot of debt, but we also have a humongous amount of wealth that we built up in the United States. A lot of that wealth has come from our robust financial markets. It's come from our relatively educated workforce. And the interesting thing is, at the same time that our government debt has grown. All of our other sectors have shrank. So,、mm-hmm. if you look at, for for example, something like debt to income, U.S. peaked in two thousand seven, something around one hundred and thirty between one hundred and thirty and one hundred and forty percent. It's down to just about a hundred today. Sure, that's actually the exact opposite direction that most developed countries have taken over that time. So, even though take a Sweden or a Canada or Australia, their government debt hasn't grown nearly as much as the U.S. has. In some ways, it's maybe. Some places hasn't even grown at all, and they do run closer to surpluses. But their consumers and their households have become incredibly levered、mm-hmm. to the degree that Canada's households are running a debt-to-income ratio at something close to 190 percent. Australia about the same. Denmark over 200. Most of the developed、uh, parts of Europe are running debt-to-income ratios in the consumer world that are substantially higher. Not just at the U.S., but at the U.S. in 2007, before its consumer-led recession. So, in some ways, the debt that we carry has shifted to the government sector away from some of the other sectors. And when you look at the underlying fundamentals of the consumers, in a lot of ways, they've never been better.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, I, I could tell that your your research capabilities from like your hedge fund days are like shining through. Let me ask you this question, kind of a side note here. Sure. You know, because you know, listeners, you know, across my different podcasts, whether it's boosting your financial IQ or this or business strategy, you know, obviously their aim is to become more intelligent and and have more data、um, to make better decisions. So, you know, a question to you on a on a personal side, you know, how does somebody Get access to good data without becoming like this nerd, and they're like in the library, like going through you know magazines and articles and spreadsheets and whatnot.、Um, how do people like business leaders get access to good data so they can speak to it, just like you're speaking to, and, and they have more facts to to back up their decision making?、Uh, that's a great question, and you know I think one of the things that we don't appreciate is just how much data has become available. There is a lot of robust public source data that is really、um, freely accessible to people these days. There are a lot of, in some ways, because of the invention of the cloud and because of just how much it's proliferated, there is a lot of public data that is now hosted in the cloud that is relatively easy, 
you know, easy to access. A lot of public source data has also gone into the API form where if you kind of know what to look for, it's it's kind of relatively easy to find. So in some ways, I think the smartest thing that people that that people do, and honestly, this is even this isn't even touching on the significant impact that something like the AI or the large language models are going to have on data accessibility and decision making because it opens a whole world of possibilities from knowing which data to access, even to having the large language models build you a code structure to access it. All of that is is becoming available. APIs can tell you, can give the large language models can give you code to pull data from an API into a language and structure it and transform it and then allow you to look at it. There's a few wonderful podcasts that I listened to on a geo, some geopolitical sides where they made the point, and I kind of agree with, that the question today isn't about data access. The data is there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the data is there so much that it's a question of too much data, and it's a question of knowing what to look at and deciding how do I mix through all of all of the pieces to tell kind of a more comprehensive story. The thing that I think is going to be very hard for AI to, to generate or to replicate is the idea of looking at data and finding a story from it. I think that that human element is still very important, becomes more important, and it's really valuable in almost any sector, even beyond finance. The idea of knowing that you're looking at a ream of information from different sources and piecing that together into a comprehensive narrative, that piecing together structure that I think is valuable in analytical tools in just about any sector. I think as, for my hedge fund days in particular, that is maybe the most important skill set that anybody can have. The idea of piecing together information from different data sets into a comprehensive story that you start telling yourself. And as you start writing the story further, you then realize which data gaps you have, and then you start filling it in with data. And I'll give you an example of exactly how I structured the particular Gen Z research piece. I actually started it on, not an accident, certainly wasn't an accident, but I started looking at it from just starting to see the median income data that comes out of the census every year, because I think that's very valuable in saying the direction of of trends. And when I looked at at age-adjusted median income, I noticed, oh wait a minute, something's going on here. There's there's some that there's some income that's building at the younger age cohorts. That got me started. And then I said, okay, how does this translate in somewhere else? And by complete accident, I started looking at home ownership rates because I noticed they were still rising. They had gotten pretty good. And I noticed, oh wow, there's suddenly record home ownership rates for households under 25. I'm like, that can't be right. Mm-hmm. surely all this narrative about young people not wanting to buy homes, something's got to be wrong here. But then I started looking and yeah, home ownership rates for under 25 are the highest that they've been in 40 years. That's That piece just came to me and it said, wait, that it said to me like, this doesn't fit with the millennial Gen Z is broke narrative. So then yeah. I started looking at more data sets and I said, okay, well, what's going on with their student debt? Oh, they're not taking as much student debt. What's going on with, with other factors? What's going on with this, this, and this? And then at some point, so it started with a bunch of disparate data. And then it came to me when you're looking at data said something doesn't look exactly right or something looks different than I'm expecting. That became the story. And yeah. from there I said, okay, what other things, what other things can either disprove my narrative? Because my initial point was like, something's got to be wrong. This has to be a data problem. 
But then when I noticed that more and more things were lining up, I was saying, I realized, hey, wait a minute, there's a mosaic story here. And the story is that is, isn't that Gen Z is rogue. It's the exact opposite. It's that there are multiple data sources telling us that Gen Z is doing something completely different because they're facing a different environment than what millennials did. And in actuality, what happens is often when you've got like a big, big economic move, when you've got this big shift in the economy that happened in 2008, people will overlearn the lesson. They sure. will get really conservative. And in some cases, they won't recover on time. So the same way that people shouldn't have been buying houses in 2007 because prices were running up and they were about to crash, they should have been buying houses in 2013, but that's the opposite of what happened. Yeah. They were buying in 07 when homeownership hit 68% and they were selling or not buying in 2013, even though they could when it hit 63. And in some ways, the way that it translates here is that Gen Z realized, hey, wait a minute, like student loan debt, which was a big problem for the millennial generation, and also a bit of a misunderstood part of the uh, overall debt picture, they took on debt and there was a narrative that they took a lot of, they had a lot of degrees that weren't high paying. Yes. So what Gen Z did is they didn't take as much debt and they went into completely different majors. So we saw in, in my, my research, I noticed that over the past 10 years, degrees in engineering, computer science, and healthcare rose by something like between 70 and 120 percent, even mm -hmm. though the total number of graduates had barely budged. But liberal arts degrees fell between 10 and 30 percent. So we could see that Gen Z was very keen on getting degrees in higher, presumably higher paying jobs. That was a very definitive decision. We also noticed that they stopped taking as much student loan debt. Uh, on inflation adjusted basis, it actually peaked in 2013, and it's been going down ever since. And even though the cost of education has gotten higher and the salaries coming out of college rose. So we see that Gen Z went into college taking less debt, getting higher paid degrees. And then when they came out of school into a good employment environment, naturally they got higher paying jobs. Yeah. In a lot of ways, they took the higher paying jobs and they bought more housing. So it becomes kind of like a, an enforceable story narrative where you look at the different pieces and say, what is this telling me? Yep. And and I love that. And I love how you you mentioned, you know, understanding the story behind the data. And that's that's what I preach all the time is, you know, when companies are setting strategy or when they're looking at their financial statements or their modeling or whatever it may be, it's like, it's not just about what's on the face of the financials. It's the story behind the numbers. It's being able to look at that, you know, that sheet of music and hear the song. So you could go out there and execute and make changes in the business. But I think if you're just looking at the data in raw form, you know, you could look at a financial statement and say, okay, yeah, our costs are, you know, up a little bit and, you know, our, our profits down, but you know, things are looking good and carry on business is normal. But really what you may not understand is that, you know, your cash position is, is bleeding out um, over here or your, you know, your customer base, you're, you're attracting more customers, but you're losing more existing customers or whatever it may be. There's a bigger, broader story that may not be understood either on a micro level at the company level or on the macro level, as you're mentioning with bigger social and economic trends. And to that point, one of the most interesting things is that the best outcomes are often built over a long amount of time. You know, sometimes in the financial markets, they tend to really invest in the narrative that this quarter's earnings are going to be so important, or the next quarter's earnings are going to be so important. When in reality, if we've built legacy businesses and we've built a lot of intangible capital in the employment base that 
that exists in U.S. firms or in corporations all over the world, and that's built over decades. That's not built over quarters. Apple won't stop being Apple in Q3 2023. It'll still be Apple. It'll be Apple that's earning a bit more or a bit less or doing this or doing that. Uh, the example that I always kind of park at, and this is, is one that I thought about for a long time, because in a lot of ways, I think some ways, if we think short term, and we always think short term, and we always think quarter to quarter, we lose sight of the way that we build intellectual capital over a long period of time, and the way that we build good ideas over years, not over quarters. Yep. And the example I'll give, even though it's not my direct universe, is actually Amazon. Um, because Amazon is a stock has had its tumultuous time, but there's something interesting that I remember from my economic history from the 2000s, which is that, or the late 2000s, early 2010s, which is that Amazon at one point was fairly profitable in their retail business, quite a bit higher margins at that time, because this was before Amazon Prime, before they started really competing on price, uh, back when online shopping was obviously a lot smaller. But the critique that everybody had for Amazon at that time was that they weren't paying huge dividends and weren't doing stock buybacks. Instead, everyone said, why are they using all this free cash flow in one side of the business to support this other completely non-profitable business, which is a huge long shot? And what are they doing with it? What was that unprofitable business? It was AWS. Mm -hmm. And how's AWS doing today? It's fantastic. They became an industry leader in cloud and they spent resources. They spent billions on it. They didn't listen to people that were saying quarterly, quarterly, start paying us a dividends. Do this, do this, do that. It was a long-term investment. And the funny thing is right after that, as soon as AWS became profitable, they what did they do then? People are again screaming, hey, pay us a dividend, pay us a dividend. What did they do? They said, hey, wait a minute, we're going to invest in this other unprofitable thing. And everybody said the same thing. How do you think you're going to compete with FedEx? What do you think you can beat FedEx at their job? And how, and how big is Amazon's logistics business today? Right. They spent those profits, they reinvested it again over the course of years. And now... Because of those combination of things, those profitable ventures, they were able to win on price in a lot of ways. They were able to make a lot of decisions. And this kind of longer term thinking, this, this idea of not jumping on the immediate short term trend of the fad and kind of investing in yourself, it's as true for a big corporation as Amazon as it is on a personal level where people invest in themselves. They invest time and they invest money in advancing their own knowledge, advancing their financial literacy, and advancing, quite frankly, their future prospects. In some ways, that's almost the story of Gen Z, where they spent their formative years and they spent their college years thinking, wow, this is the lesson that I saw in 2008, and this is how slightly older people than me fared, and this is exactly what I don't want to have happen, and this is, this is the result. We have like a decade plus of people really doing very smart long-term decisions. And this is why Gen Z is as wealthy and as successful, quite frankly, as they are. So in, in let's dive into, you know, this concept with Gen Z and, and all the opportunities that exist before them. You know, I think the world is like an entirely different place than what I started out with when I started in my career. I mean, there's yeah. like digitization of lending. Um, it's like so much easier to start businesses. There's AI, there's I mean, there, there's all this stuff that opens up new opportunities. Plus there's this increased access to financial literacy. I mean, people are learning more about money and about just how finances work. And I mean, way more than generations before them. So how do you think 
these things with like the digitization of lending, other credit platforms, access to resources to start new businesses and you know entrepreneurship and all these things. How do they how do these things all come together to lead to to better outcomes? I think you're asking the exact right question. And the way that it seems to me is that this plethora of resources is giving people that want to access that resource and want to engage with it just really almost the world is their oyster kind of advantages. In some ways, if you're a young person right now, if you're going into college, if you're going into or you're in college and you're deciding what major you want or what internship you want or what career you want, the prospects of looking up what potential salaries are like, what potential uh, career growth paths, they're all in some ways just clicks away. I mean, going back to my college days, if you if you wanted to know how much money you made in investment banking or whatnot, you had to go into the college's digital vault. You had to kind of dig through PDFs of like this kind of career and this kind of career. A lot of the information was very hearsay. It was, it was at a time when digital literature was still early. So you sure. really didn't have that access. Today, it's at, a, it's at, it's at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. You've got large language models that'll, that'll pull up information for you. You have you know, intelligent search profiles that'll kind of tell you things that you want to see. There's, there's YouTube videos, there's, there's tutorials, there's literally a whole bevy of information. Now, the one area you touched on that was, that's really important, that's gotten a real revolution in this, is financial literacy and financial access. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a digital platform, and I'll say, frankly, that as DVO1, we are partners to a lot of the uh, digital lenders, particularly in consumer unsecured, and what they've brought to the market or what they've brought to the fold is the ability of people to really take control of their financial uh, situation. There is a humongous amount of financial knowledge on what kind of debt you have, how much interest rate your debt carries, how do you plan to pay it off? Like, if you've recruited this this, this debt, how can you get out of it? Sure. And there is a ton of ways today. There, there's tons of resources to that'll tell you exactly how to increase your credit score. There's a ton of places that'll give you information about what average credit scores or what average interest rates could look like across the board. If you went onto the Fred Economic site, which talk about access to, to, to data, the St. Louis Fred Report, it's an online portal where you can ac- get access to literally any score of financial or geographic information that you need. If you wanted to know how much credit cards are, you ask Fred the average APR of credit cards, and they'll tell you what it is today and what it's been over the past 30 years. And if you have debt, you can think about, okay, if if my AP, my credit card is 20%, is 20% an appropriate rate? How mm-hmm. much do I want to pay? How much do I want to pay this debt down? Is there sources of information where I can pay it down? There's bank rate that you can ask or Credit Karma or NerdWallet or any other form of financial site where you can ask, how much should I be paying? How do I get myself out of debt? And not only can you get answers, but you can get a source. You can actually find sources to get yourself from the question to the actual actions. You can ask, hey, what are the highest paying careers of various sites? And, t- and there's going to be a ton of information that will tell you. You can ask, what are the most the cheapest form of debt? And you'll find that. Hell, you can even ask, if I have student loan debt, how can I get out of that specific debt? And they'll even direct direct you to a process of student loan debt refinancing, which really didn't exist as a market 15 years ago. And today is a vibrant market where you can get very competitively priced loans to start chipping away at the student loan debt you know that you've accumulated. 
Sure. So the resources today, because of the proliferation of financial information, uh, because of the proliferation, quite frankly, of digital lending and and an increased access to to consumer knowledge and credit and increasing literacy and financial availability, it's creating good outcomes for people that want it to be there. Yeah. What's lacking, of course, is we still have to get that information to people. There are a lot of folks that are uncomfortable with digital lending. There are a lot of loans that don't know these resources exist. Um, and getting that knowledge to more and more people is just going to keep yielding better and better outcomes. So we've created the platform. We've created the tooling. Now it's about getting it in front of more and more people. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. and I think that's great. And 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 I I mean I'm bullish on the future, right? I think it's very bright. Oh, yeah. But let me ask you this. Let's say somebody's listening to this and they're in Gen Z or they're a millennial or or heck, you know, it's, they they could be at any point in life. Absolutely. And they they they're watch they watch the news, they hear the rhetoric, they, you know, they're fearful about you know, the future, right? Because I, I talked to a lot of people and it's like, oh my gosh, what do the economic prospects look like? And maybe all the opportunities are gone, you know, that's for generations in the past. And, you know, what does that even look like for me moving forward? What would you say to them? And what kind of advice would you have for somebody who's listening to this? Maybe they're a little discouraged about the future. They're a little bit more bearish about what's to come. What opportunities do you think exist? And maybe you could provide a little bit of encouragement for anybody who may not be as bullish and excited about the future as maybe we are. Of course. And, I, and I'll say this, Steve, I think you, you'll know, having been in this industry as, as a long time as well, at any given point, there is absolutely never a shortage of someone telling you that a recession is coming around the corner or that the best days are behind you or that be, be afraid. Yep. And in some ways, unfortunately, they're financially incentivized to do so. There's there's a lot of research that suggests that, you know, news media tilts negatively because it gets more clicks. And in some ways, even even kind of financial pundits in some cases are paid to have a more bearish outlook because it sounds more credible than just saying, hey, things are going to be okay. So in some ways, when you look at when you're hearing the prospects that something is bad, something is negative, like the best days are behind you, rarely is it true. It's true occasionally on a on a systemically just like collapsing level, systemically crisis level, as we had in 2007. But the truth is, at that point, that information was very visible underneath just rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have the kind of data access that we have today in 2007, because if we did, well, one, DVL1 wouldn't exist, but two, there would have been a lot smarter decision-making around what kind of loans were being made and what kind of securities were being purchased. But we can't, re- we can't redo the past. We can only kind of do today. And the interesting thing to me is where that negative information comes from is people will all, often take one data point and they'll say, Things haven't been this since a bad time. Mm-hmm. So they'll say something like credit cards debt hasn't been this high since 2007 that we remember what happened in 2008. It's purposely designed to elicit a response of fear. In truth, that number is just one number. So frequently, if people, people that come with a doomsday day request, they'll usually focus on one number, maybe two. They'll say something like just the national debt or the amount of credit card debt or the amount of subprime auto debt or some number. And they'll just take that number in a vacuum and make the story about the number. 
everything else is just adding words to your thesis that is based on just this one data point. The truth is that we've spent 15 years now unwinding on a societal level a lot of the excesses that we built up in 2007. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it, those excesses aren't necessarily like all gone. It's not that we have no problems in the US economy. It's not like there's nothing, there's no bubbles anywhere. There's always kind of sectors that will jump up and be really aggressive in a, in a boom time and they'll consolidate a bit when you have uh, when, when you when you have a particularly rough cycle. We certainly saw you know fits and starts in a lot of industries, including tech, including you know web three, crypto, a whole a whole bunch that have had boom times and bust times and you know sometimes both. But the reality is on a macro level, when people are getting a little bit fearful, the smartest thing that they can do is realize, number one, that societies are very adaptable. And American society particularly is adaptable because in some ways we have very deep financial markets. We have the ability to pivot on a societal level to a different type of economic model without sacrificing society as a whole. That's actually fairly unique for America versus almost anywhere else because it's because we have dynamic labor markets, we have dynamic capital markets. So we have the ability to pivot. Society never stays down for too long. And the other thing is neither do people. Mm -hmm. They they kind of go, they adjust, they adjust to a circumstance, they'll adjust to a shorter period of time. But bad times, however long they last and whenever they come, they really never last as long as you think they are. And they're never all that just calamitously ruinous as pundits will say. Sure. We are able to recover. We were able to recover from 2008, which was a massive crisis. And we forget just how relatively quickly we recovered considering the amount of damage that was in the system. We, oh, as Americans, we pivoted. We pivoted in a way that Japan couldn't in 30 years. And in some ways, the way that some other societies that have these debt levels won't be able to for a long time in the future if they ever run into a challenge. Here, we pivot. And Sometimes companies pivot a little bit faster than people do, and people take a little bit of a longer time because human psychology doesn't pivot on a quarterly basis. It usually pivots over years and decades. But we do eventually adjust. We do eventually kind of get past, past the difficulty. And for everybody that's worried and for everybody that's saying, oh, man, today it really is bad. All you have to do is just go back to the commentary that you heard last year, the year before, 2015, 2013. Every single year since 2010, somebody has been out there and a lot of people have been out there saying, we're getting another recession. We're getting another recession. Things are bad. Things are bad. Things are bad. In some cases, it's pundits. Sure. And what I found is a lot of the pundits that are saying it's bad, either A, don't invest directly or B, don't invest the way that they say their rhetoric sounds. And that's mm -hmm. as true of professional hedge fund managers as it is for pundits on CNBC. A lot of people on in their hedge fund investor letters will say, we're in a, a morally vacuous place. We've got too much debt. We've got all this stuff. But when you see their positioning, they're still somehow long the US economy. Yeah. So it's never as bad as it sounds. And there are so many bright spots in the US economy from Gen Z, from the amount of education we have, from the amount of suddenly over the past three, four years, how much more job training or how many more kind of boot camps and training academies and various workplace placement things that have popped up in the United States. These are all 
on a progressively basis, very, very positive for long-term outcomes. This is the kind of like long-term future that we're building. And in a lot of ways, you see the advancements in technology that have come over the past few years and how in a lot of ways the U.S. is at the forefront of them. Yeah. And this isn't even talking about the fact that, you know, if you're talking about a really big picture, we're going to, over the course of the 21st century, we're going to complete the biggest energy transition in history. That's going to create hundreds of thousands or millions of jobs in renewable energy and sustainable growth in a lot of things. And that's all kind of a long-term positive view. If you square that with what's the negative view in the US, what's coming down the pipeline, other than high debt levels, which you can argue how much they even matter. And when you look at it against wealth levels, they're just really fractional. Mm-hmm. You don't really have that much in the way of like actual numerical hard information that's scary. Yeah. So you have a ton of positives and you have maybe one or two negatives, except that media likes to harp on the negatives rather than saying, hey, things are going to be quite fine. Sure. Sure. No, and I and I love that perspective. And I, I love your analytical approach and all the data insights that you brought to the podcast today. I think is a tremendously valuable uh conversation. And you know, there's a there's a lot to learn and and to get from this conversation. So thank you, Vadim, so much for being on the podcast. I can't believe we're already out of time, but um yeah, that that's the end of it. Steve, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I love being part of the podcast and uh if there's ever another consumer debt podcast that comes up and you want to touch base again, I'm happy to come back on. Absolutely. I, I definitely, uh, I'll keep you in mind because you, you were great. So for those of you who are listening, I'm going to go ahead and link the Deems information on the website. So if you go to byfiq.com, which stands for boosting your financial IQ, you go there on the guest page, I'll go ahead and uh, put his bio on there. I'll provide some links so you know how to get in contact with him and to also get more information about DBO1 and what he's doing over there. Um, So more to come on that. But for everybody, thanks for tuning in today. And in the meantime, take care of yourself. Cheers. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.